I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. This is not your host, Matt Dixon. This isn't even Barry, our trusted ukulele player. I am so sorry to disappoint you. My name is Carrie Barrett, and I'm the producer of the Purple Patch Podcast. And this week, we're breaking format just a little bit to bring you a special Ask Matt Anything edition of the podcast. What's this? It's an outrage. How do I not get to introduce the show? Oh, well, I will go back to my seat, and I guess I'll just wait here patiently for the questions to flow. Back over to you, Carrie. Why, thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Now, I just want to let you know that we put the call out about a month or so ago on the podcast, and you all delivered with insightful questions on heat acclimation, hill training, bike fits, a multi-sport approach to running, and, of course, the recovery coach's favorite topic, rest. Thanks to those of you who left great voicemail questions on our website. You can do so at any time and we'll answer them in future episodes of the show. So just head on over to the podcast page at purplepatchfitness.com. Click on the Ask Matt Anything microphone on the right-hand side of the page. Tell us where you're from and fire away with your questions. Okay, because I'm at the helm this week, we're bypassing the squatty update and the word of the week, or, well, okay, if there was a word of the week, it would be producer takeover. So this week, I'm firing up the questions, and we're going to start with a question from Kevin. So let's just head right on into the meat and potatoes. Hello, Matt. Uh, my name is Kevin Williamson. I am actually a Purple Patch athlete working with John Stevens, who's been uh, awesome, by the way, since September. And um, I am, a, like you, a Brit living in the States for about uh, 20 years. And I'm from the same part of the UK as you, roughly. I'm from Bedfordshire, so, you know, posh Essex. Um, anyway, the reason or my question is related to an episode uh, you put out recently about um kind of taking a multi-sport approach even if you're just a runner i am a triathlete um and so i wanted to look through a slightly different lens which is is there a minimum amount of running you can do to be a successful triathlete and um i'm saying this after working with john since september uh he's been massively up upping my swimming and uh doing all the usual hard bike workouts and not really doing a huge amount of warrant running and um i actually for me did a pretty fast uh half marathon a few weeks ago and i just this weekend did a, a 5k um much quicker than i was anticipating uh, even though i've probably run maybe 50 miles in the last three months so that's my question is uh, is there a minimum useful, productive amount of uh, running training that you can do and still be successful. Okay, thanks. Bye. Well, Kevin, thanks for the question. What a question to begin the show. Thank you very much. And I hate to tell you and give you that compliment. It's a great question because you are from Possessics. 
Bedfordshire, I say. Anyway, so running, it's a fantastic question. Let me see if I can do my best. And I should preface the answer to this question by saying I am not anti-run. In other words, the solution for every athlete isn't always to run less. In fact, I have several athletes, many athletes that I have done run projects with, etc. But, and this is a really important, but we have had consistent, really big success across both athletes getting ready for running who have big history of injury, etc., as well as multi-sport athletes, triathletes, who have had great overall triathlon performance by taking a more minimalist approach, or I would call a multi-sport approach to their overall training. So let's uh, first start with your project that you're doing with Coach John right now, swimming. There is tremendous value in triathletes being very, very strong and what we call swim fit. And it's not just, I think this is really important, it's not just for athletes to get better at swimming. In fact, we'll often get a lot of folks coming in and saying, oh, I don't like to swim too much because there's only small incremental gains that can be made. I can pour my heart and soul into swimming, but I might only gain 30 seconds, 60 seconds over the course of, let's say, a half Ironman swim. And that could be true. It takes a massive amount of effort, particularly for adult onset swimmers to gain or make meaningful gains in that type of event. But the value of being swim fit goes well beyond just swimming gains, particularly if you're a multi-sport athlete. And in fact, it is one of the key components where you get a tremendous, what I call cross-pollination effect to the rest of the sport. Swimming is non-weight bearing, 90% of your weight is displaced. And you have the opportunity, therefore, to do more frequent, higher intensity training without much of the catastrophic, to use that word a little bit liberally, but the catastrophic damage that can occur to muscles. And so with athletes that are doing a project like you're doing, minimizing running, really focusing on swimming, I have never in all of my experience seen one of those athletes that hasn't committed to swimming for several months, minimize running a little bit, that in the end hasn't become a better triathlete. So I wanted to sort of launch with that to give you a little bit of context, maybe a little bit of confidence. But the question was, well, is there a minimum amount of running that you should do so that you can be a successful triathlete? So to get to the meat and bad potatoes of that, there isn't a mystical quick fix long term. But let's frame triathlon first of all. It is a sport that is comprised of three disciplines. It's not comprised of three sports. So in other words, it is a single sport where everything works together. And I started with that with the cross-pollination effect of swimming. So you are a swim bike runner, not a triathlete that swims, cycles, runs. And so swim bike run is the key component. Of those three disciplines, running is the most corrosive. So in other words, running is weight bearing and where a lot of the injuries occur as well as a lot of the muscular damage. And so 
what we have in swimming as a lever for you is a higher chance to create more frequent cardiovascular stress, much less damage, etc. What we have with biking is the opportunity to create massive muscular resilience and conditioning, as well as, of course, cardiovascular conditioning. And that opens the way that when you build and lean into those two elements, we can really focus on your run training, really looking to achieve a couple of components. First, relatively frequent, but really easy and short tissue resilience running, and then making just the key sessions be really about specific focus goals. So it might be hill repetitions when you're doing it, high speed, longer distance, whatever it might be. But you can get ready for running through those other two elements as well. And so I really think that for athletes, if you can find the recipe that is right for you, you have a greater opportunity to have a reduction of injury. You can weave together more consistent, effective training. And this is particularly true for time-starved athletes. And then over time, as you actually build that tissue resilience and your body becomes more resilient, more more resilient to the fragility that can occur for so many athletes. And if you build really patiently, then you can maybe add more running in. And this is really important. This whole principle is really what we build our whole run squad about. And that's that we really lean into the mission of, okay, what we're looking to do with run squad is to help people thrive the performance focus without them getting injured or break the mold of injury cycles for athletes that would love to run or feel like they can't run, but get into it. And it's all about the multi-sport approach. So with our run squad, for example, just going here, Kevin, very briefly, it's anchored around running, strength, and a multi-sport discipline. And we've had massive results in this with athletes going two hours and 30 minutes in a marathon, big breakthrough marathons, and all under the banner of multi-sport. So to cut to the chase, is there a number? Is there a minimal amount of running training that you or any athlete can do? The honest answer is no, it's highly individual. There's not a minimal. You do ultimately have to run, but our goal is to really, I would turn it on your head, maximize your running training that you can do while that running training enabling you to stay healthy and deliver a program that's really effective. And so that's the route that you can and must lean into the other sports. And that's why your coach, John, is really having you build on the weakness of swimming, minimize running. And then I'm sure what John will do is weave in more consistent running and then weave in some stronger running. So it's all part of the longer term journey. I hope that that helps. Um, for the broader audience listening with this question where you might be like, oh, I never thought of it like that. I think this is one of those recipes where to find the right run, run amount for you, it's really, really valuable to get some professional guidance and advice. So in your case, Kevin, chat to John, really map, map through the appropriate longer term roadmap. For everyone else, it's a great opportunity to grab a consultation perhaps, or of course, look at our tri-squad and run squad because your question, Kevin, is truly at the backbone of how we achieve so much success over the course of those programs. It's a big amplifier. It's very, very different. It takes a little bravery, but ultimately I think it's pretty smart. So I know that's pretty wordy for our first question, 
but those are my thoughts on minimal running. Cheers. Okay, next up, we've got a voicemail from Corrine, located in Wisconsin, and she is asking Matt about that cursed four-letter word, rest. Hi, this is Corrine from Wisconsin. My question is on that four-letter word, R-E-S-T. I see in our tri-plan, we don't necessarily have a designated rest day. And I am one of those people who likes to turn all of my workouts green after they are completed. So my question really revolves around, should I be forcing myself to take a rest day um, maybe like once every three weeks? I am feeling good, but a little drained. However, every morning I get up and do the workout. So should I be taking more rest? Thanks. Have a great day. All right, Corrine. Whew. The magic word. I guess I am labeled the recovery coach, aren't I? So R-E-S-T, rest. Let's talk about it. I think the first thing that we should do is establish what is rest. What are we looking to achieve by securing a complete day off? But really, what are we looking to achieve from recuperation, recovery, rest? Well, the obvious first goal is rejuvenation. And I think in your question, I'm really talking about two types of rejuvenation. And that is your body rejuvenation physically, and that's muscle tissue as well as metabolically, your hormones, etc. And then mental rejuvenation. And those two are really important for athletes. So I think that we can almost separate them and then we put them together for you to become the athlete that you are. So how do we actually achieve rejuvenation? Making sure that you can bounce back, absorb, and adapt from the consistent training that you're doing. It's more than just having a simple day off. It's sleep, both in terms of quality of sleep and length of sleep, obviously. There's big components of nutrition and hydration. And then finally, where your question gets to, which is around training, lack of training. and Physiologically, if we break down that last one, physiologically, it can be argued that some movement is for, more effective at creating rejuvenation than zero. So a lot of athletes, both emotionally, practically, and from a feeling standpoint, feel really stale if they don't do anything. And there is some really sound science behind movement facilitating recovery, putting a little bit of load on the tendons, muscles, and ligaments, as well as oxygenating the muscles with a little bit of circulating blood. So some movement is often better. And that's why a lot of athletes, in parentheses, never take a day off. But with that, we talked about rejuvenation. And I said, it's physical. It's also mental. And I do believe that zero, in other words, your complete REST, as your question asks, your rest day, it can be really important for the mental side. A nice complete day off of no activity is really good sometimes because it enables you to absolutely turn your back on the sport. And that's something that's really, really successful. Now, to give you the ultimate mission of where you want to go, I first want to address one other thing. You talked about 
turning the, the uh, sessions green. In other words, sort of checking the box, done, 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 done. I think it's important over the long term that that is a habit that you really want to go on a quest to evolve because successful training isn't about checking the boxes. It's about over the long term layering really consistent, effective training. And in that effective training, really being ready to hit big, big sessions. And so a lot of people run into trouble with this pass-fail mindset of I've got to turn the box green. And it's kind of like robbing Peter to pay Paul. I would much rather you, before the week, look at the key sessions, look at your life, how it integrates and make some really smart, pragmatic decisions over the course of the days or weeks of training so that you can put together X number of hours of really effective training than just an extra hour or two, but it creating extra suppression. And that takes a lot of confidence. So I do think that that's an important habit for you to evolve. I get it. I get the same emotions. I go down the guilt path too, but I think it's really important. So you want to know what to do, don't you? I'm going to tell you what to do. The first thing for anyone listening is I think it's really important for you to know yourself. It's not what is right for your competitors, what is right for your friends. It is what is right for you. So me personally, for me, I think every few weeks it's really important for me to just turn my back on the sport. And every two to maybe three weeks, I have at least one day and sometimes two days completely off. And I just like it. I like to turn my brain to other stuff, family, friends, work, etc., and just not think about my exercise and training. Some other folks just don't need that at all. And in fact, it drives them batty. And so those folks, it's okay to, in parentheses, never take a day off. But what they need to do is to absolutely still commit to rejuvenation. I like to say everything in moderation, including excess. And so if you nail the easy days, and then, yes, it sounds like from your question, every two or three weeks is great just to say I'm going to turn my back off the sport. But it's not a prerequisite. It's not pass-fail. For you, in your question, Corrine, I would say I would program it or at least have it in your back pocket as flex where you do it guilt-free every couple of weeks. And I think that overall, you're going to rebound emotionally and physically. Hope that helps. Great question. Thank you. This next question comes from Andres all the way in Costa Rica. And Andres recently transitioned from a road bike back in January to a new bike, a time trial bike, a TT bike, and was wondering if Matt could give him some thoughts regarding the transition of these two bikes, very different fits, and asking about things such as heart rate, power, and what to expect during this transition. Hi, Matt. This is Andres from Costa Rica. And I have a question regarding the TT bike position. Last year, I did my first half Ironman in a regular um, road bike. And back in January, a couple of months ago, um, I switched to a new bike, a TT bike. And I was wondering if you could give us some thoughts regarding the transition 
um, in aspects as uh, heart rate, frequency, um, power, what to expect uh, when doing the, the that transition and what are like the best practices to be um, back in the same level as the as the as the regular road bike. I feel like um, heart rate is a little higher than than normal. And also that power is a little uh, lower. Of course, I already did the the bike fitting, um, and I believe that's not an issue. I mean, I, I I'm feeling now more comfortable in it. But um, I'd like your thoughts. Thanks. All right, Andre. So that is a great question, and uh, I'll preface it by saying that this one is a little more tricky for me to answer really specifically, but. What I'll do is I'll hold hands with you and I'll give it my best, okay? And the reason I say that is that bike fit and particularly your metrics that are come out as an output are really highly individual. In other words, it's tough for me to really know without looking at your prior fit and how you sat on that bike and interacted with that bicycle, your current fit. And then, of course, the associated data in both of those. If we could really rip that apart, then we could probably give you a little bit more specificity. But what I can do is give you a few general thoughts. Firstly, road cycling. When you sit on a road bike, not in TT position, but you're sitting up, that position is biomechanically much more favorable for athletes to produce higher power. The seat is set back. You get greater full muscle recruitment. You can engage hamstrings, glutes a little bit easier. So from a biomechanical standpoint, the road position tends to be the bike that you're going to see athletes generate a little bit more power. The key is when you place an athlete on a time trial bike or into TT position, there might be an offset of a little loss of power, but that is offset, more than offset, by the gains that the athlete gets through the aerodynamic advantage. So in other words, because they're more slippery in the wind, they're going to go faster. And it's those two elements that we look at. And ultimately, we don't win any awards for producing the most power. We win the most awards, satisfaction for ourselves, podiums, etc., by going the fastest that we can relative to any power that we put into the bicycle. Great. So it's very, very common for folks to not mirror their road power to their time trial power. And that's okay. How much can it be? It really depends on the athlete, but let's call it within a window of 5 to 10% of gains. Any bigger of a gap, therefore, requires attention. So imagine if you can ride going along a flat road and you can ride at a very strong sustainable pace at 250 watts if you then do that on a time trial bike and you can only hit 180 to make it quite aggressively obvious that really requires some uh, focus and attention there's a little bit more going on there okay but within five percent seven percent ten percent that's okay you're going to make it up with time trial fit if you have a really wide delta, a massive gap, then you want to look at a couple of things. The first is revisit the bike fit. And secondly, just as important, 
you want to look at how you are sitting on that fit. And that's slightly different. The fit is just the points in space, but how the rider actually sits on the bike, their posture, their pedal stroke, that can have seismic impact on the effectiveness and also the power that they gain. So I think that's a really important thing. Fit, that's just going into the shop, making sure that you're getting good points in space. Posture, retaining posture, etc. That's a thing that's seldom spoken of, but really, really important. Okay. Your goal is to get the best possible speed return relative to your effort that you put in. And so that's your position and your setup, how you sit on the bike, how you pedal the bike. So those are all sort of phase one or stage one elements, you interacting with your bicycle, and then how you apply it to the course that you're on relative to terrain, relative to environments such as wind. And your mission is to keep rhythm, power on the grades, maintain speed on the downhill grades, and of course, find best return through momentum, etc. I think, Andre, with you, there is an adaptation phase with your new fit. And once athletes tend to get used to that, the gap between road and time trial often narrows. And it narrows with conditioning of the muscles, a little bit of familiarity with the position, postural fitness from holding that position, and the simple case of father time. And so I would look for more comfort, improving your ability to retain the posture, get stable, and then build up, and you should see that gap shift. Now, my final couple of things. Uh, number one, a month or two after your initial fit, you probably want to do a follow-up as it's a brand new bike. I think it's a good idea to revisit it. The body is quite a plastic thing. You shift in your position and it's a really good revisit. If you're, I'm not sure where you got your first fit, but I do know that our partners, Ivan O'Gorman, they're absolutely fantastic. They're based in Boulder and of course our center in San Francisco in Purple Patch. But both Chris and Ivan at IOG or Ivan O'Gorman Bike Fitting, they do some great online consultations. And that might be a really good thing to say, hey, let's set it up. Let's see how you're interacting. It's as much educational and refinement as much as anything else. And that might be a good thing because it's very, very common for your bike fit or any rider's bike fit to need to evolve from when the first fit actually took place. And it's not that the first fit was bad. It's just that your body has adapted and you might need to evolve it. So that's one thing. The second thing is a more global statement is many, in fact, I might even say most athletes don't understand how to actually execute and nail their bike riding and training. And that's a simple truth. And, and I say this in a loving, laughing way. Most triathletes don't know how to ride a bicycle. And I don't mean that in a really offensive way, but with the obsession over output, putting in how much power they can they generate, how much cost with heart rate, et cetera. And also the rise in real popularity of just sitting on the bike trainer at home, either on Swift or Trainer Road or these other vehicles, which are all great and fine. There's a lot of athletes that don't understand the art of riding a bicycle. And so that's why we're very, very strong. We really encourage athletes to participate in our camps and why we make our camps really educational and immersive. 
But secondly, this is the whole genesis, and I can't help but bring this up, the whole backbone of all of our bike training in both our triathlon squad, our one-to-one coaching, and our bike squad, I should say, is video-based coaching. And the reason that we do video-based coaching is so that we can coach athletes on how to execute appropriately. It's instruction. It's coaching. You get into focused, hard intervals that are actually done right with really good posture, really good pedaling. And I think for that reason, if you go to any race, you look at a purple patch athlete, it is likely that you're going to see really fluid pedaling, really great posture, even at the back end of racing. It actually looks like they belong to their bicycle. They're a part of it. They're not just perched on top of it and really uncomfortable. And guess what? That is earned through hard, smart work of practice of doing it right. And I think, Andre, that might be a really, really good option for you, but more importantly, option for other people. And so, Maybe you think about checking out Try and Bike Squad. Great question, though. Thank you. I hope that was helpful. Okay, next up is a wonderful question from Jim in Jackson, Wyoming, about approaching your run that takes place on a variable terrain. Hi, Matt. Jim from Jackson, Wyoming. My question is on the run you have a course similar to say St. George with lots of rollers, do you follow the same protocol as you would on the bike? I.e. as I get to the top of the hill, I either start running or I run faster to crush the hill to carry that speed downhill. Thanks. Cool. It's ask Matt anything. And so far we've had cracking questions and Jim, I think I'm going to put you into that category, a cracking question. Thank you. So I think it's important we talk about the run and the run off the bike, particularly for the lion's share of age group athletes. So let me sort of remove the top 5% of the field. Let's talk about 95% of the field. The biggest limiter on athletes' run performance at the most basic level is mechanical fatigue. So you've swum, then you've ridden. And getting it right on pacing is really, really challenging. Getting it right on fueling and hydration is really challenging. And you get off the bike and you're doing a half marathon or an Ironman, a marathon. And so often it's not, oh my goodness me, I'm running out of puff. It's why won't my legs cooperate? What happened to my wonderful legs that I used to have in my training? In other words, it's muscular, it's mechanical fatigue. And so that's a reason before we get into terrain management, that's a reason that I always talk about your overall mindset should be pragmatic when it comes to running off the bike in racing. And here's a simple mantra you can remember. You should run as well as you can. So that's good form, good posture, good leg speed, your best brochure type running, and you should run it as long as you can. So in other words, you do it until you start to decline either from physiological cost or you feel like your posture and form is starting to turn to custard and then you have a walk break and then you should do it as often as you can. So a single, and let's take a half marathon off the bike, a single half marathon is done with really good running form of certain durations strung together and linked with very short walk breaks. 
And when you put all those together, for the vast majority of athletes, the net end time is much faster than just using toughness and being stubborn and hanging on to the rope and saying, whatever I do, I shouldn't walk. That's just performance stupidity. And so the first thing I'd say before we even think about terrain management is be brave enough to integrate walk breaks. Make sure you choose comfortable shoes as well because mechanical fatigue, you don't want to be racing race flats, etc. Now, when you get to your question of terrain management, running is really similar to the bike in some ways. But the key is that you have many less tools in the toolbox. You don't actually click a little button and it goes zzz, and you have gears. You don't have any gears. And on top of it, there's a slower speed return. So you can't just coast downhill. You still have to be active going downhill. On top of it is weight bearing. So you're going slower. You have less tools in the toolbox and it's weight bearing the whole time. So with that in mind, what you have to do, let's think about three elements going up a grade, cresting the grade, and then going downhill. And this will go a long way to answering the question. So let's begin with uphill grades. As a general statement, when you are going uphill, running off the bike, it's better to have a mindset of being managed. And the reason for that is the speed reward for going really hard up a hill is minimal relative to managed good form running. And so you can go really hard because you're going against the grade and your heart rate and a physiological cost will go up, but you're not going to go that much faster. So for the majority of your run, you want to have a management mindset. And in fact, the speed penalty of going easier or walking with purpose is minimal. And so when we talked about the reason I started with actually thinking about the courage of integrating walk breaks is because you can utilize walk breaks on uphill grades and you're not going to have a massive speed penalty. And so calm, controlled, managed, those are the words on the uphill. Okay. That's really, really important. I would also say as you go into a hill, as you go into a roller, a lot of athletes make the mistake of charging into the bottom and then going, <gasps> and instead I would much rather see you build gradually, look to build up gradually, start really calm and then progress the effort up to a very sustainable effort. You don't want to pop the champagne cork and then try and stuff the champagne back into the bottle. Instead, you slowly, slowly, slowly shake the champagne and then as we can, you can pop it over the top. So let's talk about the crests. The crest of a grade, if it's following by a flat or following by a downhill grade, so that would be a roller, you want to first stay calm and then there's a general roll. As the grade dissipates, so in other words, as the hill turns into a flat or a crest, your speed should increase doesn't mean it's a bang, it's a smooth whoosh, but as the grade drops, the hill goes away, you should get faster. And that's a wonderful mindset to keep. What happens with so many athletes is they fall into mental lethargy. They just stand to the top, they stay slow, and they fall into a slow rhythm. And so remember that, grade dissipates, go faster, super. 
and then you want to have your fastest running and your best form on the flat and the downhill. So when you do hit downhill sections, it's all about using gravity. And that means you're going faster. Your leg speed is faster, but that doesn't mean it's hard. Instead, what you want to have is you want to manage your cardiovascular stress, stay very light on your feet, and allow gravity to do its work. And this is where training kicks off, where you can really do some light, in parentheses, easy, fast running downhill, and it is a skill acquisition. And so it's actually quite similar to the bike, apart from you're really managing the grades, you're cresting and, and increasing speed, and then you're flowing downhill. What you don't do is run hard downhill, because that's just going to create massive damage. Light on the feet, really easy. Now, that's a lot of information. It's a great question, Jim, a lot of information. If there is one great place to have an individual consultation, this might be it. How do I set up my strategy for run, walk, and terrain management around race XYZ? Because it's going to be a little different if you go to a Florida, a really flat course, or a Maryland, relative to your question going to St. George or Lake Placid. And it really depends on the walk, run, walk strategy. It's really dependent on the athlete. But there are very few athletes that wouldn't benefit from it. And so I think that if you really want to get down and dirty, this is a great one relative to your course, as well as, of course, your fitness and your own situation where you can really map it out. So a consultation is a good idea for athletes there. The other thing I will say is this type of question is absolutely golden. It's exactly the type of question that we get in our regular office hours. As a part of Tri-Squad, we have regular office hours, um, pretty much bi-weekly up to monthly, where our coaching team come in and answer questions. And this is a classic question, and it's a backbone of our education. How do you actually take the fitness that you build and then apply it to your situation in your life? So this is really, really valuable stuff. But this is just a backbone of what we do at Purple Patch. I couldn't help but to say and tell you that. Our final question for this episode of Ask Matt Anything was actually emailed in from Sherry, and Sherry is from Epping, New Hampshire. She writes, I listened to your earlier podcast regarding heat acclimation and am planning on doing the recommended sauna protocol. I was wondering if you think it would be useful to also do a few long endurance focus, lower stress trainer rides in the weeks leading up to race day in a room set to a higher temperature in an effort to dial in electrolyte and nutrition needs at a higher temperature. Is it worth it or is it a waste of time? Thanks. Sherry, thanks so much. Epping, New Hampshire. You know, there is an Epping near my house in England and it's very wooded and it's very pretty, but probably not quite as pretty as your home in New Hampshire. But thank you. I am in St. George in May. Fantastic heat climatization. All right. So there's a few things to go through here. Really, really good question. Number one, 
I think that you will benefit greatly in your global training by doing at least two or three test sessions. And what I mean by that, and we'll get to heat in a couple of seconds, but I would actually implement a couple of simulators where you can really dial in your protocols around fueling and hydration. And you do that with typically a bike, two to three hours with a run, 60 to 90 minutes off it, with pretty good blocks of race effort in there. And you really go down and start to understand my timing, my amount, and my frequency of both fueling and hydration. I think that's a really important component. And you can also infuse into some of the sessions that I'm talking about a little bit of an assessment as well. How many fluids am I losing? Am I, am I a big sweater? Am I a salty sweater, etc. So your question, though, more around the heat acclimatization is should you start to introduce, as well as the sauna sessions, that's, of course, the backbone of it, should you introduce some low-stress trainer sessions in a high-heat environment? So the answer is yes, maybe. <laughs> the, the first thing, that what we're looking to do with the sauna sessions, and you can also do what they call hot, hot water immersion, in other words, very, very hot baths as well. You get to the same component. But what we're looking for is purely physiological adaptations to help you boost your blood volume, uh, increase your sweat rate so that you're a better cooling machine and bring your sweat rate earlier. In other words, you start to sweat sooner and more. And that's a good thing. As long as you've got your hydration in state, you become a better cooling machine. So it's all about physiological component. What you don't gain is much of the emotional familiarity and so with that in mind, doing some low, low stress, but high heat, therefore that's where the stress comes from, but low, low power, high heat training is okay. It's not absolutely key. It's not non-negotiable, but it's okay. And you can do it in all sorts of environments. You can do it in a hot room, extra clothes on, etc. And one of the things that you get is just some emotional familiarity with the claustrophobia that those types of high heat races and high humidity races gains. But we're going to get most of our physiological focus through the sauna sessions. Good. Okay, that's anchored. Another reason that could be good to add these in as well is that it does give you an opportunity where you can consume your race type of fueling in race type amounts to see whether that fueling works for you. So in other words, there are some, let's just make it up, some gels where you might taste it around your kitchen table and think, that's not too bad. I can imagine that putting that on my ice cream. It's very tasty. But as soon as you have it in a hot environment, it tastes deathly sweet and horrible. And so while you don't need fuel for these types of sessions, taking in some fuel in that hot and humid environment might open up something that could be a challenge in a high heat environment. A second component that's valuable, a third component I should say, is fluid loss. So when you put yourself in that environment, weighing yourself before, weighing yourself afterwards, without wet clothes on, by the way, so doing a naked weighing pre and post, that can be really insightful for you as well. So when you combine those three things together, there's probably quite a good case to say, yeah, just add some of that in. That's good. But the key is you don't want to do key sessions in that type of environment because you want quality of training. It's very supplemental 
And on top of it, they are the first thing to go if you're accumulating fatigue, okay, systemic fatigue, tired. And so don't be, we had a question earlier about checking the box and making it green. Don't be stubborn on these. Put them in if you're feeling fresh and great. But any benefits that you'll get will be destroyed if you show up to St. George depleted because of them. So that's really important. So the answer is not critical, nice to do, as long as you have a platform of health. Really, really good. I mentioned at the top of these, uh, the top of the question about some of the testing components. So our work with Fuelin, really, really great uh, team over at Fuelin, Elizabeth and Scott, and they do a lot of very specific testing for athletes to start to do gut training for carb tolerance, looking at their sweat rates and creating really custom solutions for their hydration. And so that might be a good place for you to look to start to really anchor in on that. Just giving you that more as a public service than anything. I tell you what, really, really good question, really enjoyed. And I'll say to everyone before I hand it back over to Kerry, what fantastic questions. We will definitely do another one of these sessions. So feel free to pepper me. We'll accumulate. And of course, I will answer the best ones. The next time, maybe we'll make it a bit more narrow, but that was really, really great. And Kerry, back over to you. All right, Matt, thanks for letting me steer the ship this week. I appreciate that. And thanks to all of you for your, as Matt says, your cracking questions. The advice and takeaways I know from these questions are valuable for all of us who are training for upcoming events, and even those of us who are integrating sport into our time-starved lives and want to hear trusted information. So thanks again, Matt, for all of your insights and valuable expertise. We'd love to hear from you. So to submit a question for Matt, visit that podcast page at purplepatchfitness.com. You'll see the microphone on the right-hand side of the page. Let us know where you're from and fire away with your question. We've already got a couple of great questions in the hopper for next time. So have no fear. We've got another Ask Matt Anything ready to go. Oh, and before we go, do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review to the Purple Patch Podcast. We love reading your honest feedback, like this one that came in from Cool Cat Coaching, who wrote, quote, Each episode is filled with so much education on how to be the best version of yourself in life and sport. Matt is a true educator and has a strong awareness of what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Thank you, Matt, for all of your great knowledge. And thanks all of you for listening. Matt will be back next week with another episode of the Purple Patch Podcast. I am producer Carrie Barrett. And until next week, take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers!